Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today I'm so thrilled to be joined by the wonderful Britt Marling, who is the co-creator, director, and also actor in A Murder at the End of the World. And starting off, I wanted to talk about just some of the writing that just came to you and Zal in creating this show very naturally in terms of Darby as the central character, because it sounds like very early on you had such an intrinsic idea of who Darby was and even just being able to answer questions yourself about how would she spend her time in an afternoon? How would she respond to this? What would her favorite color be? Um, and so I was interested in how that really helped you to shape the overall narrative, just having such a clear idea of your central character. Oh, gosh, that's such a good question, because they don't always come that easily. You know, so sometimes you can find yourself halfway through writing something and you still can't answer some of those questions just off the cuff, you know, and then, you know, you have more work to do. But for some reason, I think there was something about Darby that as a character just have a, had a vividness from the beginning. And I, I think that might be because her origin story was always so clear to us. We really understood her as the daughter of a coroner in a small town who grew up without a mother, who was really on her own, who, you know, from a very early age was sometimes tagging along with her dad to crime scenes or would be in the morgue with him, which is not a place that you really feel children should be. And yet, because he was a single father, it also makes sense that, you know, he just didn't have childcare and that she was in, in sometimes in these spaces that were more adult spaces when she was a child and that that kind of gives her a gravitas and, and an awareness at a, at a really young age. And so I, I think it was something about that world that then made her very clear to us later. Um, and I think also it may be a lot of the research that we did into amateur sleuthdom and into the world of hackers that, that she just kind of appeared quite vividly. And so when you asked a question about her, like what's in her headphones, it was like Portishead, you know, what does she like to drink? Coke and coffee. I don't know where that came from. It was just the feeling of, you know, a girl who's behind her laptop, you know, in the middle of the night solving these crimes and one bit of caffeine isn't enough. So she pairs it with another and that she kind of, you know, exists in that state of, of the rush of always, you know, being ready to solve something. Yeah, it was very, it was really exciting to to write a character that was so ready to speak. That doesn't always go that way. And and Darby obviously has such an aptitude and skill set from a young age in terms of of hacking and really understanding technology. And that's one of the linear connections with your character Lee as well, having a past in that. And I love that at one moment in the show, there's there's a conversation about how hacking, you know, the genesis of their passion for it was this escaping a feeling of powerless and powerlessness and loneliness um, and it kind of giving you this sense of being a part of something and, and a freedom and an escape and so I was interested in how you really wanted to explore that thematically through these two characters in the show. You know I, yeah I had some friends who were really serious hackers in the early era of the internet and whenever I listened to them describe that time and that space it really felt like in the early days, there was this, it felt like a genuine frontier, you know, it hadn't come under so much corporate control yet. Like the FBI didn't even know how to keep up with early hackers who were often teenagers in just like basements of uh, some home in the Midwest and had figured out how to like hack into a major bank, you know, and it, the kids were ahead of everybody else and they were punk kids and they were usually coming from a rebellious sort of outsider place. And so 
for this moment, for a hot second, it really felt like, wow, the balance of power is going to swing into the hands of very young, very radical people. And then of course, like, you know, everything came in and sort of calcified and changed. And, you know, the FBI would recruit and hire a lot of these teenage hackers to help, you know, explain to them the the, the weaknesses of some of these corporate websites and infrastructures and stuff. And so I guess from just knowing some people who'd been in that space, it was really exciting to think about the character I play, Lee, as somebody who came of age in that era of the internet and experienced that freedom and wrote a lot about it and was able to do a lot inside it. Um, and that that would then really inspire, you know, a, a young Gen Z detective who kind of saw Lee as a lone woman in what had really been a more male space um, at the time. So, and it was also just fun to write a story about, you know, female mentorship in a way. You don't see that very often on the screen. Usually women are, you know, put in competition with each other. Um, for usually for male attention on screen. And it was nice to write something where the women are not competing and they're learning both of them from the other. And um, maybe there's mistrust in the beginning because they're in a whodunit and it's a murder mystery. But by the end, you know, something else sort of buds between them, I think. I also think one of the the beautiful aspects in the way that Darby's written as a character is the way that she asserts her authority and knowledge. And it's not that she needs to speak louder than everyone in the room to make them listen to her. It's that she's kind of speaking with like a softness and she has a vulnerability as a character and other people are like leaning in towards her because they're so aware of just the knowledge and the intelligence that she brings to the table. Um, and so I was interested in how that really shaped a lot of details, especially when it comes to scenes where she's kind of starting to be listened to a lot more in terms of what she knows from listening and observing earlier on in the series. I, lo I love that you're bringing this up because we actually had um, Elise Braga, who's so wonderful in the story and as an actor I've admired for such a long time. She plays Sean Cruz, the, the first woman to you know walk on the moon. And there's this moment in chapter three where Sean Cruz turns to Darby and is like, you know, it's one thing to have something to say. It's another thing to be listened to. And I, I thought it was so nice to have Sean set that line up because Sometimes it's about standing up and being forthright. And Darby certainly does that at the breakfast when, you know, she stands up and faces off with Andy and is like, I, I, I think that there's foul play behind all of this, but she isn't listened to in that moment. And, and later on, it, it takes time, I think, for the other guests to witness the ways in which she's been quietly right all along. And then for some guests to, to also make space for her, there's a great moment in chapter four um, where the character Martin played so beautifully by Jermaine Fowler you know, everybody's going crazy because they've now realized that they're in a hotel and that people are dying off one by one. And there's a lot of noise and clamor. And Martin sort of cuts through it and is like, I want to know what Darby thinks. And I think that's the first moment that the audience is also like, I want to know what Darby thinks. And I and it, it was interesting for Zal and I, as we were writing this, to realize we had to do about like three hours of storytelling to get the audience to a place where they also believe that the young woman in the room has an important perspective. And, and I think that's why in this story, it was so important to braid Darby's past with the present because you had to continually prove to the audience, like, no, she grew up on crime scenes. She's been in a morgue. Like she knows how to identify some things on the body even better than her father does. You had to keep building these proofs in the past that would authorize her to solve it in the present so that the audience isn't just being like, well, you know, this is ridiculous. Like, why are we watching this 
Nancy Drew type, you know, girl sort of solve the crime. And so, um, so yeah, I think structurally we had to do a lot of work to kind of um, work past the gender bias, you know, which we all have. I mean, I myself have that gender bias. We, we've all been consuming narratives for so long in which the young women aren't usually in that role of authority. Um, so it took a bit to figure out how to break through that wall, you know. I also think she's such a great conduit for the audience in terms of the way that we're watching the show, because the more you watch episodes of it in the different chapters, you start to really kind of hone in on the way that she's looking around the room and what is she paying attention to. Um, and so especially when it came to kind of like storyboarding and, and directing the series, as well as even just the details that you're putting into the scripts, how were you thinking about the way in which you wanted to really kind of like lead the audience in certain directions and using her as that middle person for us? I, that's such, I love that question so much because Zal and I had so many conversations about this uh, together. And then with Charlotta Bruce Christensen, our DP, who's just so marvelously talented, uh, the three of us talked a lot about what it really means to do a story in a single point of view. Because a lot of times you'll you'll watch a mystery and there'll be a lead character, but you're often cutting to scenes that are outside their point of view. And that's helping sort of further the momentum of the story. But in this, we like really stay with Darby. We never leave her. And so it kind of takes the idea of the you know private eye, like literally the eye to a whole new level. It's like we never leave Darby's eye and we never see something that Darby isn't showing us. Um, and I think that that is really important because you're sort of teaching the audience as you go and we were learning it for ourselves like what it might mean to be inside a crime scene and to look at it from a young woman's perspective rather than from what we've maybe traditionally seen those spaces um in and and that was a real dance i think for all of us to figure out what that means you know like what darby sees first and and second versus and how sometimes that's not about a wide shot establishing the space. That's about a handheld, you know, POV shot showing you literally where Darby's eye is going from, you know, a flask that's tipped over to this empty room to that. And, and the pieces that she's sort of suturing together as she enters these different spaces where something has happened. Um, I also think it was really amazing to be working with a female DP um, while telling the story of, of a young woman, because there's an incredible synergy that happens I think when um a female DP is handheld operating and so close to Emma's non-binary but portraying a, a, a young woman as a character there's this real like pas de deux that can start to happen between the two of them where you really feel that they're in sync and that Charlotte is anticipating where Emma as a performer is going to go even before they go there um so yeah, I think I think it was a good choice in the end that we stayed in her point of view, though it was very it made the writing very challenging and it made Emma's job very challenging as a performer because they were in literally every scene of the piece. So I, I love that. And and also I've heard you talk about just like being such a huge fan of storytelling where each time you go back and you rewatch it, you get to kind of like piece apart all these different details. And that's something that this show does really successfully as well. It's like every time you go back and retroactively look at scenes, once you get later in the story, you kind of start to pick up little details or little looks between characters, or that's why that thing was there in the scene the way that it was. 
Um, and so how did you set about making sure that you were giving details that were leading towards the culmination at the end of the series, but also that on a second, third and fourth viewing would give just even more detail and information to the audience? You know, I think part of that is just a matter of assembling a group of storytellers who all care with the same depth that Zal and I care, you know, because usually it takes us so long to build these stories because we're not adapting a short story or a novel or a, a, another, like a film that's been made. We're coming up with it all from scratch. So we've usually spent a long time just building the world and then a long time writing it. And so we've often been sitting with a story for two years before we even inviting anyone else in. And I think we really look for collaborators who feel like they want to go to that place with us. And we really had it in this story. You know, Megan Gray, who's the costume designer, would think of every detail. I mean, one really beautiful thing that she did that really stuck with me is she thought about, uh, you see a t-shirt on Darby, you know, and you see it on Darby first, and then you cut into the past timeline and you realize that that t-shirt had been Bill's t-shirt and that she's kept that t-shirt for the seven years. And that even though she hasn't spoken to him, she's held onto his shirt. Um, and so there are things like that where I think the viewers really rewarded for like a detailed viewing Alex DiGerlando, our production designer, who we've worked with for years since since uh, even before the OA, we, we worked on the East together, is an incredible, careful storyteller. So always within the set design, you know, from every painting that's chosen and and the way rooms and spaces are built, there are all these layers of interpretation that come Um and the same, of course, with Charlotta, RDP. So I think it really comes down to inviting everyone in to like be excited about that level of scrutiny and rigor and to really think about every object that's chosen, every piece of wardrobe as, as being a deep part of, of communicating story. And, and obviously you've got the, the added thing of the fact that, you know, with what you're talking about production design, you also have this incredible location of the fact that you ended up filming in Iceland. And I know you explored kind of a few different possibilities of, of where to film before landing on that, you know, and it's this beautiful landscape that's this literal mix of fire and ice. And it also creates this bubble of tension because they physically can't leave and escape in any way, shape or form. Um, and as the audience, you fully understand that. So that adds layers to the story that you're telling as well. So once you knew that you were filming there, how did that add certain details or, or certain aspects to the story? You know, it's interesting because we had initially set it in Norway because my uh, mother's family is from there. And so we felt like, oh, it would be nice to go to a place where I have family and I have roots, you know, and we imagined it always, you know, as being up in the fjords in a very cold, remote location. And then as we were coming towards shooting, um, some of the, someone on the production side at FX had suggested Iceland and we were like, Iceland, you know, and then we went on a scout and we met with this company called True North run by a man named Leifer Dogfusen and his team. And the moment we landed there and met this group of people, we were just, our minds were blown. We got in a scout van with them. We went all over Iceland, like to every part. I mean, we put on crampons and trekked across glaciers. We went into ice caves. We rappelled down into ravines and like we're trekking across that um, basalt Canyon, which is in chapter three. And so it was very extreme experience and a real adventure. And I think we had written everything, but we were still refining things to location. So it was amazing to have that scout early and then to come back to the production offices 
in, in New Jersey and be like, okay, let's rewrite this scene to that Canyon that we actually repelled down into. And let's, let's add some of these features to the, to the story. And I think there was something about Iceland that turned out to be even more correct for the narrative. And I think it's that you're constantly moving between the past and the present in this. And we want, we knew we wanted to use wind as a sort of sound mechanism to carry you across those spaces. And I think what's interesting is Iceland doesn't have any trees. So like the deserts of the American West, which are also treeless, you're often in these vast expanses where you just see all the way to the horizon line and the wind just comes rushing across those tundra, those frozen tundras. And then we carry them into the past across the desert. And there was something about that that felt, um, I don't know, timeless, like like the wind was carrying us in a circle where it would sweep us into the past and then, you know, right back into the present again. And that we were sort of able to think about time as being more elliptical rather than linear. Um, and I think those landscapes were a huge part of it. And I think just being in Iceland with the Icelandic people and the Icelandic crew who are incredible people lent something to the narrative, which which felt like, you know, we had to really um, surrender in a beautiful way to the elements and to the to the extreme nature of of the settings there. You know that you have it properly humbles you. You know, in a very good way. You feel your human fragility in the face of those driving storms and winds and and you know frozen lakes. And and the same is true of the desert too. So. I also want to talk a little bit about your performance and your portrayal of Lee, because I think there's, it's, it's a character where there's so much going on beneath the surface that we don't know early on, you know, at the beginning, we just kind of see her being a little bit more on the outskirts, very focused on her son and being very quiet and insular. And then as the series progresses, we start to learn more about her marriage and, and the position that she's in and the fact that she's tried to leave. Um, and, you know, we even see a moment where there's a moment of physical violence. So we see a flicker of, you know, what she's been dealing with in that relationship over several years and why she is trying to escape it. Um, and I think you capture it so brilliantly, even just in terms of like the body language, like the avoidance of eye contact, trying to kind of like not engage too fully in things, you know, even the friendship with Darby, it's like she starts leaning in and then she pulls herself back um, and so how did you set about figuring out a lot of those intricacies even at the stage when you were starting to think about it as you were writing it well, that's such a good question it's interesting because I haven't been able to talk about any of this yet and, and maybe we should say a huge spoiler this you know if you haven't seen up to chapter five you know don't don't go further until you've watched it um um I think part of what we wanted to try to explore in the writing uh, was the idea that I, I think sometimes there's this that there's this impression that um, abuse you know in, in an intimate setting only happens to a certain kind of woman and in, in my experience and from what I've seen from from women around me like often very strong very confident you know very ambitious women, can find themselves in situations of partner violence that that you would not imagine or anticipate. Um, and so I think we wanted to put a, a face on that or give give space to that um, and show how in those spaces, your confidence can very quickly be eroded and you can find yourself, you know, in a really in really foreign territory in which you don't know how to get out. Uh, of what you've gotten into. 
Um, and so there was something about exploring that with Lee that, that felt really challenging, but also really, um, really right for this story. Cause I think Darby in many ways in the past is on this cold case in which she's traveling in the wake of a serial killer who has ended numerous women's lives. And so she's always picking up the bones and, and, and trying to find the identities and trying to, you know, return the bodies to the families and, and give name to these women and honor these women and acknowledge that they exist and, and that their existence mattered, you know? Um, so there's something very beautiful about Darby coming into contact with a woman who's going through violence or abuse in real time and it, it not being too late yet in a way. And even just the interactions that we see with you and Clive Owen, it's like, if you look at the body language, it's like the way that he'll kind of like physically move his body over her and, and you're kind of like avoiding looking at him. Did the two of you just find that quite intrinsically with one another? Or did you have conversations about what you wanted that to look like with each other? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's very, it was very hard with Clive because Clive is just so damn lovable. You know, he's just, he's not only because he's a like he's a marvelous actor and so committed and, and so, but it's also just a wonderful person. Um, and so is, I would sometimes joke with him that it's like very hard to be in a scene with him and, you know, be angry with him or because, um, but I think, you know, we were able to find that space and to, and to navigate the genuine complexity of it, because I think, you know, when you, when you read accounts or you talk to women who have found themselves in the situation of, of spousal abuse, um, it's often a very complicated feeling of, of the terror and the, and the pain and the confusion and the grief also being braided with the aspects of that person that you still love and, and the complexity of that and, and the complexity for um, many women of often knowing where their spouse's violence is coming from psychologically and what abuse they may have gone through um, from their father or uh, their family members that they haven't processed and so are then externalizing um, on people around them. Um, so yeah, I feel like it was it was a real dance to try to get that right to to show um, the things inside the marriage that are that are very broken. And to also at the same time show that it wasn't always that way. I mean, there's there's so many details and layers in in the storytelling of this where we get to look at moments and then we get to kind of have these added perspectives to them. And especially when it comes to the fact that we're moving through a narrative linear in the present, but we're also dealing with the idea of memory, particularly with Bill and with Darby. And so what was that approach in terms of, okay, if we're going to revisit this scene in this moment and we're going to bring it back into this chapter in this episode, what what are the additional layers? What are kind of those added details that we really want to bring forth for the audience at this point if we're going to keep evolving it? Mm. You're, you're sort of saying like, how do you create a situation which it keeps being compelling to go into the past or necessary? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like it, each time you do it, it just like gives the audience like a little bit more information. So like if you look yeah. at this, you know, the, even just like the opening scene of of the show, we kind of keep going back to that moment time and time again, but we get so much more each time. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think one one way we tried to think about it is that you come out we come out really strong in the first chapter feeling with Darby very much like 
she had this experience with someone who broke her heart and that um, that person behaved badly. And that's the way she remembers it. And we're with her. So we see it that way. And then I think over the course of the mystery, as we keep going into the past and she's revisiting things and also starting to think of things more from Bill's perspective, because it's Bill she's investigating in a way it opens up her mind to remembering the past in a new way with a new lens. Um, and I think that starts to change the way she sees herself and, and how she was operating in the past. And so the past starts to make you feel very differently about the present as you progress. Um, I mean, one of the things we talked about a lot when we were writing this is that often, I think in detective stories, the detectives are sort of classically flat. You know, they they are who they are. And what's changing is the world around them and, and the solving of this mystery. The, the mystery itself is the arc more than the character. Um, even in Chinatown, which is, I think, one of the you know, great mysteries, film mysteries of all time. I don't know that Giddy's changes that much. He starts out as nihilist and maybe the experience makes him even more nihilist in a way. Um, and I think we wanted to try something where you felt hopeful at the end and and try something where the detective has to evolve or transform emotionally in order to become the kind of person who is capable of solving what's in front of them. Um, and so I think in that way as well, the past became a really important piece of self-discovery, getting to a place where you can revisit your past and see it properly for the first time um, and what that might teach you about yourself and how you need to transform to, to move forward. So I think that was one of the goals of, of, of thinking about telling a detective story with the with a young woman at its center is thinking about it as also requiring evolution, you know, or or asking for evolution. And and also in terms of directing on this series as well, because it's the first time that you've had the opportunity to direct on one of your shows, but it's something that it sounds like you've wanted to do for a really long time. And it was just about creating a setup where you had enough time to also give everything that it needed in order to do that, um, which I loved. And I was interested if it made the, the writing and development process a little bit different, because obviously you're always thinking about the visual language and, and kind of like how you're envisioning it on screen, but knowing that you were also going going to be stepping behind the camera you were going to be storyboarding out scenes yourself did that shift the way that you were thinking about certain moments during that process yeah you know it really did it used to it used to be that when Zal and I were writing something together um I think I kind of I I write very um image heavy like if you read just the text of the screenplay, it's sort of telling you without telling you, like this is where the shot goes or this is what happens or this is what we're seeing in the frame. Um, and so maybe that piece was always there, but but back in the day when we would be daydreaming on stuff and grabbing images and throwing them up on the wall, it was all really like, well, okay, you know, this is for Zal. Zal's gonna realize this in concert with the team and I'm gonna be there as a creator, you know, and as a producer to help achieve this. Um, but I'm also going to be in my world as Prairie Johnson, imagining what it's like to be blind and held captive for seven years, you know, which is its own thing. And so this was definitely really fun in that um, a lot of the images I would see in my head as as I was writing, I then actually, in a very specific and detailed way, had to figure out how to pull off. Um, and so as I was writing, I was definitely like, 
doing a lot more just direct storyboard images in a notebook and pulling all kinds of lighting references and color references and framing references, realizing that like I now had to really figure out how to articulate, okay, how do I take this image out of my mind that I have and how do I find the hair and makeup and lighting and frame that's going to like bring it the most together, um, which for me is really fun because I studied photography and um, alongside economics in college. And so I have just like stacks and stacks of old school analog photo books, you know, and it's nice to like get away from the internet and, you know, Instagram and like looking at images online and just like peel through photo books and find the quality of the light that really feels to you like is accurate for that scene. Um, and then to share those references, you know, with the team and to take in their ideas and references and find what feels truest to the story is just, it's such an incredible pleasure. And in this story, you know, I would say I was pretty blown away by the number of times that we as a group were able to achieve something even better than what I'd had in my mind or exactly what I'd had in my mind. And very rarely something less, you know, and, and usually when it was something less than what I had in my mind, it, you were really feeling the constraints of time and money and production that way. And you're just like, okay, we're going to lose these five setups and we're only going to do this like, you know, in one shot. And these are the things we're going to sacrifice to make the day. Um, but even then as a whole, you know, I think we all feel really proud of, of what we put into it. And in the storyboarding process as well, I, I loved reading something where you were talking about just like listening to like Rihanna, we found love in a hopeless place. And even though it's not a song that's in the show, that it was something that just kind of like put you in the right mindset and like tone for certain scenes between Darby and Bill. Um, and so how did you happen upon kind of finding music or certain things that would just like help you to create those visualizations as you're going through that? I, for some reason, that song, I just, that song just like entered in the beginning in the writing phase. And it just felt so Darby and Bill because there's something about the song. It's, it's not dark fundamentally. And yet it is talking about the nature of optimism or falling in love or feeling hope or expand expansiveness in a time where there's a lot dark and a lot unraveling and, and a lot that is um, challenging to go up against. And so that song just felt like it held it all, you know? Um, so a lot of times I would listen to that. I was listening to a lot of Portishead, obviously that made it in a lot of, in a lot of different places to Grimes, um, who I felt, you know, as someone who has always produced her own music, you know, not been afraid of the computer and the tools of creating what she wants, um, felt in a way akin to Darby, who is also not afraid of the tools and of like learning the technology and creating the world that she wants. Um, so yeah, I think music really, really heavily entered for both Zal and I are very music intense people. And we will often come into our writing space and be like, have you heard this? And I remember when we found the Caroline Shaw piece that plays, um, when they're first arriving at the hotel in chapter one. And we were just like, ah, oh, this tone, you know, this sound of a mystery that's dark and foreboding, but also promises maybe something of the light at the end. Um, and then of course, working with Danny and Sonder, who uh, are composers we've worked with for many years, who are so talented and who you can tell them almost anything and they will manage to find the sounds for it. I mean, even back when we were making OA, I. I joke with them all the time that like calling up your composer and being like, well, 
we need to create the sound of a woman telepathically communicating with a 16 foot giant octopus, you know, and it has to feel scary and also sensual, uh, but not too scary. So the audience has a disconnect and, you know, you throw all these adjectives at them and they will somehow come back with exactly what that sounds like. Um, so yeah, I think we were really, we were really lucky musically on this one with all the pieces that came together. That's so great. Well, you and you and Zal have done such a phenomenal job in in writing and creating this show. And it was also so great to get to see you directing on this series as well. So congratulations on everything. And thank you so much, Britt. Oh, gosh, thank you for having me, truly.